We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. You have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. G'day, you're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast from Tasmania that's bringing you big ideas about all things STEM, science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine. Today I'm going to be talking to Dr. Alistair Fife, a physician, scientist, entrepreneur and educator and I'm really excited because I love talking all things health systems and processes so it's going to be putting the M in STEM. Once again, our show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. So go to edgeradio.org.au to check out all the good things there up to at a grassroots level. I'm your usual co-host, Dr. Neve Chapman, and I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land where we're recording, the Palawa and Pakana people, as we record on Lutruita. And I pay my respects to elders past and present and acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and where you're listening. So, Alistair, Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I really, so Alistair, for our listeners, was speaking yesterday at Menzies, um, which is where I work, and I just really loved your talk because you've got this physician background, you trained in Tasmania, and then you went to the States, and when I look at the American health system, I kind of just want to close the lid and put it back again. Um, So it was really interesting to hear your conversation, but you're actually, are you from Tasmania? Yes, yeah, I was born. I was born and raised in in uh, in Cressy, and and went to through Scott College, Launceston Matric College, and then and then uh, here to the medical school for actually seven years because I took I did a an honors degree in the middle of it, and then did my internship at the Royal Hobart before going overseas initially to Canada uh, for five years. Um, to train as a cardiologist, um, so again, kind of a nice perspective on on a, a true uh, sort of a true socialized healthcare system, and then I've spent the last thirty years in the states. Yeah, right. And how did you like when you look back on your upbringing and your medical training? How do you think that has shaped your entrepreneurialism or your like the way you found your love for research and science as well, alongside doing your medical studies? Well, well, I think that. Yeah, we benefited from from the sort of the British style training, which gave us more interaction with patients early on, um, which which kind of honed our clinical skills to the point where we could be um, much more confident in them and and much more able to use them on a day to day basis. Um, the focus in the states is you know ordering tests because um, generally it's. The attorneys say, "Well, you know what you think and what you feel and what you saw aren't aren't really like evidence, you know, or <laughs> data. It's all about what you know." There's no gut on feeling. A piece of paper, right? Yeah. Wow. But you actually did your honors research locally on immune responses. How did you discover that kind of interest in research? like during your studies in Tasmania and did that like spark an interest that you followed through for your whole career then? Yes I I think I mean one of the one of the benefits of being from here is there's so much else out there (laughs) and so you start to ask like big like in some ways you ask big questions that initially appear to be insurmountable but then you know if you start drilling them down and and piecing them out you start to see okay here here are some interesting or ways to get from A to Z through, you know, C, D, and E. And so, so 
we kind of learned to to kind of put a career in manageable pieces, but with a long term goal. Mm. I think one of the like characteristics of Tasmanians is that they're really resourceful, and like I identify with that because I'm Irish, and I think we're also like very island focused and um, become really resourceful. But I think that that's also a thread when I see through when I read in your career summary that you know being innovative or adaptable. Do you think that that comes from that far looking, even though it's you're from a small island nature? Yes, I, I remember one of the things like it, working in the lab here, we had to get a radioactive um, isotope tracer from Denmark, and so just the resources involved in making sure that it got to ta- got to Hobart, and then how much of it was even left by the time it got here. So, so you're right. I mean, it, it teaches you, I think, to kind of look at roadblocks more as kind of as of, of opportunities to excel shall we say <laughs> yeah it's like it's not a it's not a roadblock it's just something that I need to overcome and I really like that it's not a no ever in Tasmania it's like a hmm we can't do it that way let's look at it from several different angles which is what I really enjoy so when you move to Canada how did that end up shaping you know your, one your training but then also your interest in like I, I view your career as quite entrepreneurial, so coming into that lens of looking at systems as a whole and how we deliver healthcare, being about the patient or the tests that we order, was Canada as a more socialised system or a system where it's, you know, a little bit more enclosed compared to America, which is the other end, did that help shape that patient focus of yours? Yes, I, I think, you know, Canada is actually a much maligned system, and, and I think it it works very well and it delivers a, a generally a great quality of care for for all all the players of course there are always people it's in, people want to talk about the number of canadians who go to the states to get health care because they have to wait so long and yes there is some there is some element of that but what they don't realize or talk about is the 300,000 americans that actually have canadian health care so that they can cross the border and get it for free and 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 i think the other great kind of unrecognized fact is the millions of people currently about 25 to 26 million people in America who have no insurance and therefore have no access to health care so that's kind of like in a way that's like the ultimate waiting list you know because yeah. I will never get it and that's the sad reality of the system there as well so why would those millions of people not have insurance because like for me education and healthcare are like two fundamental basic human rights. So it blows my mind that there are just some people that's like, well, you don't have healthcare. Right, because there, because there's a cost to, you know, there's an entry cost into the, and it was kind of fascinating because one of the reasons that I sort of looked more at systems was when, when Obamacare came along and it was supposed to be kind of like the be all and end all of, of, fixing that problem and and yet when you looked at the details about what was being offered um these people were being offered insurance plans that had a deductible of five to six thousand dollars well these people don't have the first five to six thousand dollars to spend before their insurance kicks in Mm. and so it's kind of a misnomer that people really have insurance um, unless they have anything other than you know some kind of catastrophic illness, um, because be, because the average amount of money that an insurance company spends every year 
guess what? It's five to six thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny that that sounds quite convenient. Yes. Okay, listeners, stick with us. We'll be talking more to Alistair in just a moment about how health systems work and what that means and how it can be manipulated. So I don't know if you've ever really thought about it, other than when you go and see your doctor, you see your doctor, and some things happen. But actually, the system behind that I think is really fascinating. So stick with us while we discuss that in further detail. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman and I'm joined by Dr. Alistair Fife today and we're talking about health systems and healthcare delivery. So, Alistair, I want to try, and this is a challenge for both of us, <laughs> to explain in simplest terms how healthcare is actually delivered. Because I reckon for most people, they think I'm a patient, I present to the emergency department or I go and see my GP and that is it. The GP decides, the doctor decides what to do or the nurse and that is how healthcare is delivered. Whereas I actually think that's not the way healthcare is delivered as all, at all. So how do you view the delivery of healthcare? <laughs> well, I mean, one can start with that basic premise, which, you know, was how it was in the 1920s and 1930s. And, you know, the, the only relationship was between the, the, let's just say, the doctor and the patient. And, and then, of course, as costs got larger, then people started buying insurance. And then that insurance was actually the, pa- the patient's insurance and for the patient's benefit. But, but then the next evolution was that the insurance company started talking directly to the doctor. So sort of behind the patient's back, there was this negotiation going on about, about what the doctor was going to get paid for doing X or Y. Um, and then that, of course, has just you know gone haywire over the last 20 to 30 years because, because then the, the patient is sort of just this convenient kind of vessel for, for which a lot of things can, can get done that may be necessary, maybe aren't necessary, maybe are valuable, maybe are not valuable, but the value is determined behind their back by the, by the physician and by the, by the insurance company. The sort of the next evolution over the past 10 years has been that um, private equity groups and large hospital groups have purchased the physicians. So what's happened is that that the physicians and the hospitals are all now aligned. I always used to say that the physician was independent and could decide who got rich. If you were sick, the hospital got rich. And if you were well, then the insurance company got to keep their money. So they got rich, which is kind of sad. But but anyway, so so the alignment of the providers, so the hospitals and the and the independent physicians, was matched then by the insurance company say, okay, well we're going to hire our own doctors, <laughs> so that our own doctors get to decide what your doctors will and will not do, and and so it's a very adversarial system. Yeah, currently, I'm sure many people will have probably seen on social media the. Um, the bills from the American health system and it's like $250 for hugging your child after childbirth or something. And it seems farcical, but it's actually an item that you can add that's a certain amount of money that makes an acclaimable thing, which right, isn't but, but actually that farcical. No, <laughs> right. So, so, th- so there's a couple of sad parts to that. So the first part is like the amounts that are charged are so 
outrageous and have no basis in reality. Except that, um, because that's not what you get paid, because, you know, there's behind-the-scenes negotiations. In fact, just about three weeks ago, the law finally came into effect in America that the hospitals had to publish public, like they had to publish a list of, of what they got paid for all kinds of things. Yeah, right, wow. Right. That so, change and, that, and that actually was a law that was passed by George Bush. So that's like three presidents ago. So that's <laughs> how long it takes. You know, this, that's how much backwards and forth. But, but the real thing is that if you cannot pay and you get a bill for $250,000, for example, then the hospital gets to take a $250,000 tax write-off. Oh. Right. So if you paid, they if if you say the bill was two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and the payment was fifty, because that's about what it is, about you know twenty percent, right? Well, if you paid ten dollars, then they would only get to write off the the five thousand. Oh. If you don't pay, right, which is which is actually kind of an interesting basis for indigent care right then they get a two hundred fifty thousand dollar tax write-off so that's like making eighty thousand right at a 35 percent tax rate yeah wow so that's why that perverse incentive continues to exist yeah and i think that probably incentives in healthcare isn't something that's really talked about often but in the australian context but also in the u.s so deciding what tests to do for a patient often is based on evidence from clinical trials that then formulate a really nice decision guide or a checklist and then it's like okay if this patient looks like that you can order these things and that's what we'll pay you for um and it's the same in in australia although it's medicare will cover those things it's not necessarily the insurance thing but it is like if someone's over 45 and you measure their blood pressure and their cholesterol then you can claim 80 dollars as a heart health check but if they're not over 45, you can't do that. Um, so how much do you think these kind of formulaic approaches stifle that ability to actually look at the patient in front of you um, and treat based on, I don't know, gut instinct, training, rather than... Experience. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I'll give you my own personal example. I, I went to get to see a new PCP. What's and a PCP? A primary care physician. Okay. Yeah. So generally a, you know, a GP or a general internal medicine doctor and um he said well i'm going to order some blood tests on you i said oh okay so what blood tests are you going to order he said uh all the ones your insurance company pays for i'm like oh so <laughs> whether or not they're relevant to my health is yeah he's like no it doesn't matter it's like that's yeah. what we get paid for that's what we do and and this is the sad part right and i think and this was part of the lecture yesterday right is because when covid hit the insurance companies didn't know what to do and because they didn't have the playbook and the and the rules were like you know everybody threw out the rules and so there that's one of the reasons why there was you know a million people died in america from covid which because they didn't know how to respond yeah because people they didn't have a playbook yeah it's fascinating. I also wonder, like, in that context, something I'm really interested in is, like, more tests doesn't necessarily equal better quality care. Um, quite often, actually, the more tests you do on a patient, you might find something that otherwise wouldn't be detected, and then you over-medicalize them. So uh, some people talk about that with, like, scanning people with an MRI, and they're saying that they've got back pain, but you find something in their hip. I don't know. I'm, I'm simplifying it. But do you think that that's a risk when they only order the tests that are covered by the checklist in whatever health system it might be that 
we're then just doing what we can get paid for rather than what's necessary. So we're unnecessarily using re resources, but we're also not really making the most critically informed decisions. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple. There's a couple. Of, first of all, it stifles thought. You know, f like like critical appraisal and and critical thinking, which is part of certainly my traditional medical education. You know, every patient is different, and I think the the thought that 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 um, clinical trials represent represent kind of like the the spectrum of human disease is, is incorrect. And so that's why we now have initiatives around precision medicine or, you know, culturally sensitive health care because we're we're trying to kind of get away from the average and say, no, we really are we really are delivering the, the care that you need. But often it's based on information that was derived from a completely separate source or a completely separate group of patients. So I think there is certainly misallocation of reward. I mean, we're number 57 in the world, mm. despite the fact that we spend at least twice as much as the next three countries combined. Yeah, America's so. quality of healthcare delivery in terms of like resource use, but also patient outcomes, like how healthy and well people are, sure. um, is pretty poor <laughs> considering how much people spend. But I also wonder, um, I think the point that you made about clinical trials is really important because clinical trials are done in a very specific population. So someone only with heart disease, but not with diabetes and not, with <laughs> not overweight or only white people, only men. And it becomes this, I think, a fallacy where it's like that patient almost doesn't exist outside of research setting. Like the, the, and the environment in which it's so controlled, the decision-making and the protocol that you follow is just almost impossible to replicate. So how do we translate that into a meaningful way for clinicians? Yeah, and, and, and I, I mean, that's a really great point because like there, there have been several drugs, like Resolin was one, Vioxx was another, that when released into the general population just showed all, you know, all kinds of toxicities that were not, not present in the clinical trials, like as you say, because because they're controlling all the other aspects. And generally, these are people who who go from one clinical trial to the next <laughs> clinical trial because we know that yeah you know, we know them and they're they're nice kind of clean subjects we call them, and and they're not complicated. But you know, real life is complicated. And then of course you have to add on to that, you know, non-prescription drugs that they get access to, um, or compliance issues like. Like we had problems with with statin medications because people would stop them, and we realized that the heart attack risk like went up over literally overnight in the first two weeks after you stopped something. So just being on something has has consequences, but stopping it also has consequences. So so yeah, real life's a lot more complicated. And yeah. I think this is where just I think this is where the kind of the the promise of of um, of proteomics or or precision medicine and being able to individualize therapy is really is really something that may revolutionize how we look at and deliver you know specific care rather than sort of blanket everybody with and the aspirin controversy is kind of a you know it's come back around that like everybody should be on it and now like well we're not sure who should be on it and so yeah, um, our evidence is always updating. That's a really nice point to take us through to part three. We'll be talking about the future of healthcare delivery and the future of medicine.
You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and I think we've been having a fascinating discussion about healthcare delivery. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman. I'm joined with Dr. Alistair Fife, who is a University of Tasmania alumni, proud Tasmanian. Um, and we were just talking about how the system in both America and Australia essentially takes population-based information and goes, okay, that's the average of what will work for the average person. That's what we're going to do for everyone, which doesn't really work work very well <laughs> it might it works it's okay average. it's, it's average. average exactly um and i think this whole precision medicine or individualized care is a huge topic of discussion generally uh, i don't know how much is in the general public but in healthcare. so in my mind that's anything like i would view precision personalized medicine as anything that helps you deliver the right test to the right patient at the right time that could be screening their genetic history or looking at their genetic makeup or it could be looking at proteomics what are what is proteomics so so um just just simply like let's start with like our genetic structure so our our gene our gene structure like 23 and me however you want to measure it <laughs> tells us kind of what we inherited from from our patients proteomics looks in the blood at large numbers of proteins, like somewhere between five, ten thousand, and says this is what has been activated as a result of who you are and the circumstances in which you live, mm-hmm. and 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 so this is like the whole. This is like the new thing. So I mean, this is not really in some ways new because we order. Say if we ordered fifty. 15 blood tests and we got some proteins like we would know 15 things now we can know like 7,000 things now some of them we don't even understand what they do but but I think it 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 will lead to you know the ability to ask more complicated questions about why somebody's why somebody's disease is more active than other people's disease or you know why does somebody with motor neurone disease have a fast pro procession and some people do not and mm. so because that because these these disease states are complicated you know yeah. i think we've fin- we've fixed all the simple ones like you know like strep pneumonia and sore throats and you know yeah but something like um high blood pressure or high cholesterol it's actually sure. super complex yeah <laughs> people don't 50 respond plus, 50 <laughs> yeah. plus years of trying to figure out yeah we know. don't really fully understand what causes either of those things um and we don't not everyone responds to the drug therapy the same way for both of those really simple conditions which i think demonstrates the complexity of how people respond differently but i also wonder you know are we doing the basics right in healthcare like how do we incentive a system to become so innovative that we can deliver you know uh, personalized medicine based on someone's genetics or proteins when we can't at the minute get someone to take their statins or make evidence-based care decisions well uh, but but see the, the the flip side of that is that by giving somebody a personalized map that's their basic mm-hmm. and so maybe one of the problems we had in delivering basics is it's not really basic for anybody yeah or just a few people um so so you mentioned statin medication so so it's clear from all of the research that's been done that 30 percent of people benefit from statins and that's why 30% less people have heart attacks. So then the question is, what do we do with the other 70%? And that's been the big question. Like, what's wrong with them that is not fixed by statins? Mm-hmm. And so now we can start to ask those kinds of questions. 
Yeah. It doesn't take away from the basic statin therapy, but what it does is say, rather than blanket the whole population, because we don't know which 30% are going to respond, we can now say, okay, we can now focus it. So the money we save from giving statin to people who don't need it, we can now spend on you know, aspirin, for example. Yeah. I think that, to me, that makes a lot of sense in terms of having a shared decision discussion with a patient where we've got really individualized information about them and we can think about what resources do they have available how can we optimally support that person's health but um supporting those types of conversations in a way that are meaningful for people and then having a system that acts as a safety net around them um is really difficult so for example if we i know blood pressure best so let's stick with that if someone gets told that they've got high blood pressure and we figure out that these are the best drugs that they could take, we then need to make sure that that actually controls their blood pressure outside of the clinical environment. Maybe they need to increase their medications or lose a bit of weight. But actually, that takes a lot of monitoring and understanding. And I don't necessarily think that I have seen a health system in the world yet that does that particularly well. So do you think there's a way to incentivize systems for that level of support and monitoring when we're so test-based at the minute, like it's so encounter for every patient you see in test you order, you get paid, not for meaningful conversations and care planning. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, there's two parts to that in my mind. One, one is maybe the system should just not even be involved because people, you know, there's a lot of people just resent the system. And so if we can, if we can incentivize the patient, like, and we give them a blood pressure cuff and say, this is what you need to watch out for, then maybe we can get more, we can get more buy-in. Um, so empowering patients. Yeah, we, if we empower patients, like this is your disease, this is your problem, we're here to deliver solutions, but the real solution is only if you take it in our, you know, and, and the problem with blood pressure is, you know, it doesn't hurt you now, it hurts you 20 years from now. And so it's, it, it makes it, and the same with cholesterol, so it makes it a harder sell than, you know, antibiotics because, you know, you've got pneumonia. So that's also part of the problem is people can't kind of extrapolate 20, 20 years down the line. So so I, th- I think that that's one thing. And, th- and then I think COVID has disrupted the, the traditional, you know, doctor-patient relationship. We're, we're now dealing with remote monitoring, telemedicine. So, so I think we, we've kind of teased apart kind of that relationship to the point where, where there are other options th- mm. that can step in that are technologically based, for example. Yeah, and I think that's really exciting. Thanks so much for joining me today, Alistair. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks, listeners. Until next time, thanks and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.